This is how John begins his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. I like to think of the book of John as sort of a common man's account. It's straightforward, direct, even simple. And yet, John chooses to start his account with this profound, deep, even poetic description of who Jesus is. Take your study guide from the worship folder, and we're going to take a look at this passage in a little more detail. He starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word. Now, I think it's interesting, and not by accident, that John chooses those same dramatic words that open the entire Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, John's conveying the idea of the pre-existence of the Word. He's saying that the Word predates time and creation. In fact, another translation of this phrase might be, in the beginning, the Word already was. John starts his account before the beginning. And then notice that Word is capitalized. Now, when we see it that way, often we think of that as the Bible, and so it is. But consider for a moment, the Bible was written by human authors, and they didn't exist yet. See, the Bible, the Word, is inspired by God Himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. But here, the Word is more than a book. It's the Greek word logos. Now, there isn't a good English equivalent for this word. It can mean word, or a thought, a principle, an analogy, or an idea. John is telling us that the idea represented here, written down by men as the Bible, existed before time itself. Not just any word, but a special word, a word sent to reveal the very mind of God to the world. And then he says, and the word was with God. Now this seems to me make a distinction between the word and God. But the word with here, the Greek word pros, indicates not just proximity, but also a personal relationship, not just together in one spot, but a relationship. What it's saying is the word isn't just an idea. It's a person. And then John makes that clear. He continues on and says, and the word was God. Now we see that this word, this person, this thought, this principle, this idea is God. Jesus is synonymous with the word, and he's also a distinct person within the Trinity. Jesus is God. John chapter 8, verse 57 It says, so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now he uses the Jewish name for God there, Yahweh, when it says I am. And the Jews didn't even, it was like sacrilege to even say that word. So he left no doubt in the minds of those who were listening to him that he was indeed God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, 
And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now notice it starts here with the word he, once again, saying that the word is a person, Jesus. And it's also saying that Jesus was present and participated in the creation of the universe. Colossians 1, uh, verse 15 makes that even clearer. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now here you have another allusion to creation. Genesis 1.3 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. John uses the analogy of light and darkness throughout his writings. Light versus darkness. Good versus evil. Life versus death. Light is necessary to life. And in the same way, John is telling us here that Jesus is necessary for true life. John 8, verse 12 says, And again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John says Jesus came into the world to give light and life to everyone. But even though he created the world, the world didn't know him. In verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So he said, well, who are his own? Is it just the Jewish people of that time? No, no. It's all of us. We're his creation. His own didn't receive him. People didn't believe in him. They didn't obey him. They rebelled against him. They rejected his message. It was that way 2,000 years ago, and it's still that way today. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In his book, 1 John, John says, chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. We can be royalty. Children of the creator of the universe. And then finally, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the story of Christmas. The creator, Jesus, the word, the light, the life, come to earth to dwell with man as a man. Calvin Miller, in his allegorical telling of the gospel, called the singer, called it the great reduction. God himself funneled down into a human baby. 
setting aside heavenly glory and kingly prerogatives to come to earth to set an example for us by living a perfect human life. Why? Because of his great love for us. So given this, how should we respond? Well, I think there's three things. First, maybe you're someone who's not heard this story before. Maybe you've heard a lot of times you're going, yeah, it's a great story, but it's just a story. Your response needs to be to believe. Verse 12 tells us if we believe, Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. And then verse 14 says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's full of truth, meaning you can trust it. It's a true story. And grace means undeserved favor, forgiveness. We're going to talk more a little bit later on about what it means to believe. Second, maybe you're someone, you believe it. You've heard this story. Some of us probably, you know, have heard it hundreds of times. Here's my challenge to you today. Be amazed. We've heard this story so many times, we don't pay attention to what it's really telling us anymore. Think about it. Jesus was miraculously born of a young virgin girl, the Son of God himself. He was born into humble circumstances, not some palace, in a stable because the inn was full. His arrival was announced by angels. To whom? The bottom rung of Jewish society, shepherds. A star guided wise men from the east to find him, to come and worship him. That is an amazing story. And for some of us, we've heard it so many times, it just, it's lost its power. All of us should be amazed. And then finally, third way. All of us should respond like Mary, like the shepherds, like the wise men, and we should worship with joy. Luke 1, verse 46 says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Luke 2, verse 9, I know a lot of you are familiar with this, talking about the shepherds. It says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Matthew 2, verse 10, talking about the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. So we're going to take our cue this morning from Mary, from the angels, from the shepherds, from the wise men. Their response was joy and worship. And we're going to worship this morning with some Christmas carols. Now... Some people ask me why we sing the Christmas carols in new and different ways. Or some people say, stop jazzing up the Christmas carols. Okay. First of all, 
It's hard to do them traditionally with a rock band, but that aside, <laughs> it's not my point. We try to make them fresh. Why? Using some of today's musical styles. Because here's the thing. It's the same thing about the message. We don't want to sing them by rote. Eh, silent night, whatever. You know, we, we don't think about what the words say anymore. It's just become repetition. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do as we sing today. Sing these songs as the worship songs that they are. Let these rich words speak to your heart anew and afresh. Sing them as if you were seeing them for the very first time. Worship God with these songs that speak of joy. Believe. Be amazed. Worship years before Jesus came to the earth. It paints a very different picture of Jesus than John chapter 1. It depicts the coming Messiah, but it depicts Jesus as a suffering servant. Take that study guide out one more time. We're going to take a closer look at this passage as well. So Isaiah begins by saying, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah starts with a couple of rhetorical questions. He faced a lot of unbelief in his day, and Isaiah knew that a lot of people would not believe this message about the Messiah. The, frame, the phrase, the arm of the Lord, talks about God's power. Then it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now, that's an interesting analogy because back in chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1, he's, uh, Isaiah had already said the Messiah would be like a shoot. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And you're going, well, who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of King David, and the Messiah was promised to be a descendant of King David. Then verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah is telling us that Jesus in human form was not impressive. He didn't have the trappings of royalty. He had no earthly throne. Consider his birth in a stable, not a palace. Consider his family, Jewish peasants, not rich parents. Consider his life. A Jewish carpenter, not some noble ruler. Jesus as a man was obscure and ordinary. God's plan for the Messiah was not one of privilege. It involved humility and servanthood. Jesus himself in Matthew 23 verse 11 said, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Many who heard the message of Jesus didn't believe it. Some followed for time, but fell away. The religious leaders of his day constantly harassed him. One of his disciples betrayed him, and the others fled in his time of crisis. Peter denied even knowing him. Pontius Pilate washed his hands of him. The crowds demanded his execution. 
Then it says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. (laughs) Jesus knows all about pain. He dealt with sorrow and grief of various kinds throughout his life on earth. He was mocked and ridiculed. Despite living a perfect, sinless life, he was sentenced to death. And not just any death, but a cruel, torturous death on a Roman cross. Isaiah continues, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now in his life, men often turned away from Jesus because the truth of his message was so uncomfortable. Paul warned Timothy about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But what Isaiah, I think, is really saying here, he's foretelling that in his death, Jesus would be beaten so badly that people would be compelled to look away. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now Isaiah is going to start to tell us why Jesus had to suffer. Not because God was displeased with him, which is what many people said at the time. Jesus suffered to bring healing to us. Verse 5 makes that clear. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He might be saying, Joe, why are you talking about this at Christmas? What does this prophecy have to do with Christmas? Everything. This is the very reason why Jesus came. All of us have sinned, meaning that we have done things that, are, that break God's law. Romans 3, verse 23 says it clearly, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done things that are wrong. We've not lived a perfect life. And a holy God cannot tolerate sin. The penalty is death. Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. This isn't referring to physical death now. It's talking about spiritual death, eternal separation from God in hell. For us to have that peace and healing that Isaiah talks about here, someone perfect had to pay for our sins. Jesus came to earth to act as our substitute. Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His piercings, his crushing, his wounds paid for our sins. You see, John chapter 1 and Isaiah 53 are really two sides of the same coin. There's joy because the Word became flesh and came to earth as a man in the person of Jesus. Jesus loved us enough to pay the ultimate price for our sins through his death on the cross. Without the cross, the manger means nothing. 
But dying wasn't the end. I mean, most of the time that's the end of the story, but not here. Jesus triumphed over sin and death by being raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I just read Romans 6.23, but only a part of it. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can have eternal life spent forever with the God who loves us. Finally, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here Isaiah is really telling us it is human nature to rely on ourselves. And especially we Americans, right? That John Wayne thing, Bruce Willis, whatever. Rugged individualism, I can do it all myself, don't need anybody. We like to think that we're masters of the universe. We want to do what we want to do. But if we rely on ourselves, we have no hope with a perfect holy God. Jesus had to die for our wrongdoings to give us hope and to bring joy. So what's our response to this passage this morning? Well, again, I think there's three things. First one, remember. During the Christmas season, it's easy to get caught up with the baby in the manger and all the stuff that's going on, you know, presents and Christmas lights and all that. We need to remember Jesus, the suffering servant who defeated sin and death at the cross. Both are the message of Christmas. In a moment, we're going to take some time to remember the way Jesus directed us to do through the observance of the Lord's table. Second piece. Second way we can respond. Reflect. We've allowed some extra time this morning to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Two things here. Jesus knows all about pain, and he cares deeply about yours. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come and get in place right now. If you have a need today, they're going to be available to pray with you about whatever need you have. But there's a second piece to this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.28 that we should verify the condition of our hearts before we observe the Lord's table. He says, let a person examine himself, then... And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'm just going to ask you to do this as we take some time today. Ask God to reveal some things to you that need to be dealt with. Maybe there's something in your heart that needs to be dealt with. Things that shouldn't be there that are there. Things that aren't there that should be there. There's sin in your life. Before you partake of the elements, confess it. God already knows, but he wants us to tell him James 5.16 also tells us that it can sometimes be helpful to confess your sins to someone else. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If you like that healing today and you want to come to talk to someone about it, our prayer partners would love to talk to you. They long to help you through these situations. And finally, a third way to respond. 
repent. To repent means to turn away. And in this case, it means turning away from your sin. If you've never done so, make a decision today to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and accept the free gift of salvation provided by his death on the cross and resurrection. Again, our prayer partners would love to talk to you about how you can know that you will spend eternity with Jesus. Let's pray.